Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will cover some of the major challenges to Umayyad authority which Hisham had to contend with. We will deliberately avoid Khurasan, as that province requires an episode all on its own, and we'll leave internal uprisings for some other time as well. Despite these generous exemptions, we still have plenty of warring to get through, so prepare yourself for a martial romp through Hisham's action-packed reign in episode 34, Hard Mode. Last time, I insisted that we had to take it slow when we were discussing Hisham's reign, and that otherwise we risked missing out on why he was such a significant and esteemed caliph. I want to start by dispelling any objections that today's ambitious episode flies in the face of that advice. It's true that we will span Hisham's two decades in charge as we cover five different threats, but despite a whole lot of action, things will pretty much end up where they started. The point of today isn't to trace some change within the caliphate, is to showcase some of the challenges that faced the Ummah and how the Caliph responded to them. There will be plenty of new names, but only a couple are worth remembering, and I'll point them out when we meet them. We'll try to keep it broadly chronological as we go through the five regions, but we'll have to jump back in time whenever we pick up a new one. We'll begin with the province of Sindh, the one we know the least about. The five we'll cover today are actually two pairs of provinces and Sindh, Another good reason to get it out of the way early. All we're told is that Yazid had put a man called Junaid in charge of punishing its local rulers, who we have to presume were no longer paying tribute, probably due to the overall loss of Arab power in the east, but who knows. Anyway, Junaid pulls it off, and within a year he is raiding all over the subcontinent, western Gujarat, central India, and Punjab. He wasn't all that successful, Sometimes his forces would encounter an Indian kingdom greatly weakened by recent wars and win some tribute, but otherwise his aggressive posture just served to keep his adversaries on the defensive. Hisham came to power in 724 and replaced him with a guy called Tamim, who promptly lost the support of his armies and then most of the lands Junaid had won just years earlier. We're not given any details, but my money is on some tribal motive, similar to what we saw in Khurasan when the troops there heard of Yazid's death and Hisham's ascension. Anyway, Tamim was in charge until he died, fleeing a local uprising, and his replacement slowly restored Umayyad power all through the 730s, and by the end of Hisham's reign in 744, he had almost retaken all that Junaid had once controlled. This concludes all we know about Sindh, and its short account could serve as a summary for the other provinces we'll talk about today, give or take. It'll always go something like this. Umayyad power was faltering and fell apart when Hisham took charge due to some pre-existing issue different in every province. Then it gets rebuilt slowly over two decades of masterful and painstaking administration. We'll have more details about the wars against the Ummah's other enemies though, and the first pair we'll take on will be the Byzantines and the Khazars, two powers that troubled Hisham greatly throughout his reign. We'll discuss the two jointly, because the same governor, or set of commanders, were responsible for both. Just like how the many provinces of the east were united under the governor of Iraq, the caliphate's northern lands, specifically the provinces of Azerbaijan, Armenia, Jazeera, 
and Syria's northernmost garrison, Ansarin, were all run by the same governor. These were all strongholds of Adnani power, some with sizable Arab populations. Abdul Malik had empowered his brother Muhammad ibn Marwan as governor of Armenia, effectively making him the Umayyad in charge of Adnani affairs. The next caliph, Al-Walid, replaced his uncle with his half-brother Maslama ibn Abdul Malik. Maslama didn't face much resistance from Armenia and became better known for his tireless raids into Byzantine lands. Now that we've gotten to know all of Abdul Malik's sons, I'm sure you'll agree that Maslama was the soldier of the bunch. He did really well until that failed siege of Constantinople under Suleiman, and Omar returned him to his lands when he ordered an end to that invasion. Yazid rewarded Maslama with the all-powerful position of governor of Iraq and the east after he helped him vanquish the Muhallabs, and replaced him in the north with Al-Jarrah ibn Abdullah al-Hakami. This was when the Khazars came knocking. Al-Jarrah had to immediately face an invasion from these nomadic Turks, and he spent three years fighting them back beyond the mountains separating them from the Caliphate, finally inflicting a crushing blow in 724. This was the same year that Hisham rose to power, and before too long the new Caliph replaced Jarrah with Maslama, with an eye to reinvigorate the fight against the Byzantines. Hisham had two sons, Suleiman and Muawiyah, who seemed to have repeatedly accompanied their uncle Maslama on his summer and winter raids into Byzantine territory. Another name we hear a lot around this time is that of Abdullah al-Battal, an Arab commander celebrated in some epic poetry, whose exploits were later popularized as adventurous tales for children and such. Don't worry too much about retaining any of these names, but maybe keep an eye on Maslama as he will be a recurring figure in the next few minutes. Over the next four years, these commanders led daring attacks deep into Byzantine lands, and despite making it almost all the way to Constantinople when they laid siege to Nicaea in 727, they didn't manage to conquer anything. See, the Byzantines were no longer the pushovers they had been in Abdul Malik's time. Their latest emperor, Leo III, had come to the throne just before Suleiman's siege of their capital, and he had done pretty well towards restoring his empire to power. The Arabs couldn't get the Byzantines to face them in open battle, a smart decision by the defenders to hold on to their fortified positions and only ever attack their enemy as they were retreating. Unable to capture any territory, the Arabs sufficed themselves with ravaging the countryside, burning fields and taking slaves. Then, in 728, the Khazars poked their heads south of the Caucasus once again. Maslama tried to address the threat they posed that year, but things get a little confusing around this point because although we're told he defeated the Khazars twice, things got progressively worse after every victory. In the second one, for example, he beats what our sources call the Khagan's army, only to be ambushed on his way back, losing many of his men and all of their provisions and equipment. So after two of these Pyrrhic victories, Hisham had Maslama replaced once more with, you guessed it, Al-Jarrah. Al-Jarrah was the Ummah's undefeated champ when it came to facing these foes, so putting him back in charge must have seemed like a no-brainer. He immediately went about trying to turn things around, leading 25,000 men to retake lost territory, pretty much everything up to 200 kilometers south of the Caucasus. It wasn't too long into his campaign that he received shocking news. The Khazars had elected to ignore his advances and invade Erdabil instead, the Arab capital of Azerbaijan, a city with over 30,000 Arab residents. Leave cowering behind walls to the Byzantines, these guys were out for blood, and over the next three days there was plenty of it, as Al-Jarrah and his men tried to repel the invaders to no avail. The Battle of Erdabil in the year 730 
ranked among the most calamitous defeats the Ummah had suffered from a foreign enemy yet. Al-Jarrah was killed, and the sacking of the city led to great devastation, with tens of thousands of its people taken as slaves. This sudden loss shocked the Caliphate and required decisive action to keep the situation from deteriorating further. I mentioned last time that Sa'id al-Harashi was a governor of Khurasan, who had done well to recover the province from the Turkish under Yazid before being replaced for not sending enough money back to Damascus. Well, we're told that Hisham picked him to lead the response against the Khazars and promised to pay every man who fought for him ten gold dinars, which was really high, like multiple times the usual salary. Despite this generous offer, Said only managed to raise a small army at first, but the Arabs caught a break when the Khazars made the mistake of picking Mosul as their next target. They were decimated by its vengeful Adnani garrison, who were seething at having lost kin and allies to foreign bondage. Said's army eventually got going and began to retake positions around Armenia's Lake Van. There, his men encountered a larger Khazar force with 10,000 Arab captives, and under Said's brilliant leadership, they pulled off a stunning victory, annihilating their foes and freeing their brethren. Their triumph brought so much glory to Said that Maslama, who was still governor of the north, grew jealous and had him thrown in a dungeon. Hisham forced his half-brother to release Said as soon as he heard about what had happened, but since Maslama now insisted he could take care of the Khazars, the caliph let him lead another campaign against them. Maslama didn't do too bad this time, even winning battles across the Caucasus around the Khazar city of Balanjar. One of his commanders was his cousin, Marwan ibn Muhammad ibn Marwan, the son of Abdul Malik's first governor of Armenia. Marwan was deeply unimpressed with Maslama's leadership, and in 732 he convinced the caliph to put him in charge instead. Hisham would not regret that decision. Over the next five years, Marwan crushed the Khazars. They submitted to the caliphate completely after he defeated their 40,000-strong army around their regional capital all the way north by the Volga. Marwan rebuilt strong ties to the Adnani tribes he drew his armies from and remained in the northern provinces to secure them for the caliphate. With the Khazars out of the way, the Ummah turned its attention back to the Byzantines. Abdullah al-Battal and Hisham's two sons, Muawiyah and Sulaiman, immediately got on it, but the good old days were over. Arab forces had been depleted and their enemies refreshed. Muawiyah died raiding somewhere along the southern coast of the Black Sea in 737, and a few years later, in 740, the Byzantines finally gave the Arabs their first pitched battle in decades, led by Leo III himself. Not content to just defend the city they were assaulting from the inside, the emperor met the Arabs on the field and inflicted a devastating defeat upon them, killing tens of thousands and taking as many captive. Abdullah al-Battal was among the casualties of that war, and while it was a turning point in the fight against the Byzantines, the Ummah didn't lose any lands or throw in the towel or anything like that. In fact, the caliphate had expanded its northwestern borders slightly, taking Malatya for example, and Hisham even led a campaign from there in the early 40s, marking the first time a caliph had personally deployed to war since way back during the fitna, though it was shortly before his death and nothing major came out of it. Following Leo's great victory, however, the warring between the two powers shifted into the mountainous border zone between them and no longer took place in the Byzantine countryside. Before we launch into our last pair of provinces, let's take a minute to catch our breath. If there's one name you want to remember from all I've told you about these two provinces, it's Marwan ibn Muhammad, as the Umayyad's indefatigability on the battlefield will propel him to greater things.
Maslama died in 738, of old age or plague or something. As for how Hisham did during all this, he's praised for lots of things, though most often for standing up to his kin and not letting any of them get away with subpar performance. Stuff like how he replaced Maslama twice and forced him to give up Sa'id. Apart from that, he kept empowering different commanders with an eye towards results. Just like with the province of Sindh, things in the north were precarious, fell apart, and then were nursed back to health with great care and expense. We can't really blame Hisham for allowing the Byzantines to regain their might, as that recovery had begun long before his time and was anyway outside the caliph's control. He kept up the pressure on the empire with repeated raids, and even managed to expand the caliphate's borders into Anatolia. Okay, now let's move on to our other pair, Andalusia and the Maghrib. Unlike the last two, these provinces weren't even remotely close to Syria, so Hisham probably didn't lose sleep over the upsets his caliphate suffered in these distant lands. We'll start with a quick refresher to get us back up to speed about the ongoings in the far west and then take it from there. The most important thing to remember is that the Arabs could not have held any lands further west than Tunisia if it weren't for the Berbers. These local nomads had been brought into the fold by Musa ibn Nusayr, and they had helped the commander lead the Arabs all the way to the Atlantic, then got the conquests of Spain started pretty much on their own before the Arabs joined in properly. But sadly, Musa's attitude towards these Berbers was in short supply, and consequent Arab commanders did not look upon them as partners. Let's slow it down. Musa did his thing during Al-Walid's time, and towards the end of it he was recalled to Damascus and stripped of his wealth. Suleiman resettled many Qahtani tribes in the west, and while we could speculate on the strategic reasoning behind this decision, I think it would be a waste of time. The little we know about Suleiman shows he had very little appetite for administration and a strong bias towards Qahtanis, so that's all I need to know. The removal of Musa and his Berber Mawla Tariq, and the relocation of Syrian and Yemeni tribes into Afriqiya did give the Caliphate more control in the west, but it also led to more tension between the Arabs and the Berbers. Omar made things better by inviting everyone to be equals, and then Yazid made them much, much worse by forcing them to pay their taxes again. I mentioned how the Berbers had killed one of his tax-happy governors, and while the Caliphate couldn't do anything about it back then, over time the Berbers did start paying taxes again. Then more taxes. Then even more. See, Arab governors used their distance from the administrative center to their advantage. They knew that as long as they sent money back to Damascus, they'd remain in the caliph's good graces, so they taxed some people relentlessly, like helpless tribes and disconnected communities. Now the stories we get about this taxation isn't your usual complaining either, there's some pretty dramatic stuff, making it sound more like systemic pillaging than taxation. For example, fine wool was an especially desirable export, and we find narrations saying these governors were no longer content shearing sheep, and instead killed entire flocks to amass impressive quantities, and then their shepherds when they complained about having lost their livelihoods. This was the situation when Hisham rose to power, and we're told that before he even had a chance to appoint his own governors to the Maghrib, he received caravans of goods and wealth from the men already there, and so he simply confirmed them in their position instead. If you're hearing this and think that it's a lot like what happened in the east with the Mawali, then you're right except for one important difference. The Arabs had conquered the east, but like I said, the west could not have been held without the Berbers. Furthermore, the people of the east were small, settled populations, and when they rose up successfully, they only threatened the caliphate's control over a limited area. 
one usually surrounded by other Arab armies on patrol which could quickly reassert control. Things were different in the West. The Berbers were an important part of the army throughout the Maghrib. A Berber revolt in Andalusia in the late 20s, for example, risked losing the entire province and was only put down with great difficulty and with the cooperation of other Berbers. This is a good time to turn our attention to Andalusia, actually. It's barely mentioned in our sources, but we know that the Ummah's armies, which were slightly more Berber than Arab but always had Arab commanders, were triumphant pretty much all the time. They didn't lose their first fight until 721, when their forces were ambushed by a local duke named Odo as they laid siege to Toulouse. We hear nothing more in our sources about Andalusia again until Hisham's sixth year in office, when he appoints his first governor in 730, a Abdul Rahman who was present at that loss in France. Of course, there was no France back then, but a handful of competing kingdoms, principalities, and duchies, one of which was Odo's. By 730, the Arabs had good control of Andalusia, though it relied heavily on Berber troops. They had also taken several positions along what we'd call the south of France, reinforcing them by sea. The first thing Abdurrahman had to deal with was a nightmare scenario. There were rumors that Odo and the Berbers were holding secret talks, that they planned on pushing the Arabs out and dividing Andalusia between the two of them. The new governor dealt with the problem immediately and decisively, first by isolating and killing the Berber conspirators, then mobilizing against Odo. We don't know how many troops he had, but numbers here were much smaller than elsewhere in the Caliphate. To give you an idea, an army of 10,000 would have been considered massive, and 30,000 would be a figure difficult to take seriously. Anyway, in 731, Odo's forces faced the Arabs in open field and were annihilated by their heavy cavalry. The duke and survivors took refuge with a rival of his, Charles Martel, who planned on facing the Arabs outside the rich city of Tours. He picked a strategic location and ambushed them where they couldn't use their horsemen, winning a decisive victory in 732. He capitalized on this by attacking Arab positions across the south of France, and after some back and forth throughout the 30s, Martel managed to push the Arabs back to the city of Narbonne, close to Andalusia. These invasions of France, though calling it Gaul might be more accurate for that point in time, were failed attempts by governors of Andalusia to expand their domains. Andalusia was the most outlying province in the Caliphate, and the closest center of Arab power was in the east of the Berber heavy Maghrib, in Afriqiya's capital, Qayrawan. The governors of Afriqiya were held responsible for the overall situation in the west, much like how the governor of Iraq was responsible for Khurasan. The most powerful clan in Afriqiya and the Maghrib were the Fihris, descendants of the founder of Qayrawan and first Arab conqueror of the African coast back in Muawiyah's day, Uqba bin Nafi'a. Uqba's son had a hand in the conquest of Spain during Al-Walid's time, and his grandsons and great-grandsons were notable military commanders in their own rights by the time Hisham came to power. For example, one of them had led the conquest of the Moroccan interior, while another had success reinvading Gaul in the mid-730s, that kind of thing. They had a great working relationship with Hisham's governor of Afriqiya, Ubaidullah, who let them determine military policy and focused on maximizing the tax revenue he could squeeze out of the province. It turns out he could get away with a lot, because the big armies loyal to the Fihris and the disunity of the Berber majority kept the locals from putting up any notable resistance. Unfortunately for the Caliphate, these were some very shaky foundations for it to build its power on in the west, and the incessant taxation gave the Berbers some common grievances to bond over. 
The locals still lacked something to really unify them though. And ironically, the missing ingredient would come from the Arabs themselves, in a manner of speaking. Karajite movements had been snuffed out in Iraq and the peninsula, but the ideas that had given birth to them still floated around the Ummah, and they found an eager audience wherever opposition to the Umayyads was strong. To be clear, Karajite ideology is basically any Islamic framework which advocates leaving the Ummah, whether by allowing for the possibility of having multiple Islamic communities, or the more violent rejection of other Muslims as infidels who must be fought until they return to the right path. The Sufriya brand, which spread through the Maghrib, was the milder sort, though it did advocate for rebellion against the Caliphate and justified violence against it as necessary in order to achieve divine justice. I should note that the label Sufriya is probably anachronistic, but we can't tell for sure. Some accounts say it had been spreading in the Maghrib for nearly three decades by this point. The sect, or movement or whatever, had united enough Berbers to maybe catalyze an uprising, except that the reactions from the armies of Afriqiya would have been too swift for it to have had much of a chance at success. Opposition to the Caliphate thus remained latent, while the Maghrib endured Ubaidullah's heavy-handed taxation, which claimed even the daughters of some tribal chiefs as concubines for the Messian harems. It was a real credit to the Berbers that they bided their time like this, because in 740 the final impediment to their revolution was removed. Habib, the scion of the Fihri clan, made plans to take the bulk of the Arab forces on an expedition to Sicily. The Arabs had invaded the island pretty much every year, but this was to be the largest invasion to date. As soon as he left, the great Berber revolt erupted, starting in the west of the continent and spreading rapidly towards Afriqiya. The governor, Ubaidullah, sent messengers to Sicily, but knowing that it would be a while before he had any reinforcements, he placed all the remaining men who could fight, mostly Arab nobles and their posses, under the command of Habib's brother and sent them west to meet the rebels. The two forces met outside Tangiers, and the Arab nobles were massacred, kicking the rebellion into high gear. Chaos ensued as it intensified, with sporadic outbreaks in various parts of the province. When Habib finally returned, he found the situation unsalvageable, and he wrote to the caliph asking for help. Hisham was shocked by these dire developments from a province that until then had seemed to be one of his most prosperous. He replaced the governor of Afriqiya with a Syrian commander named Kulthum, whom he gave 30 or 40,000 troops to go pacify the Maghrib. The Syrian army met Habib and his army in Afriqiya, and the two did not get along on any level. The troops wanted to kill one another, and the leadership was distrustful on both sides. There are plenty of conflicting accounts, but the Syrians are usually portrayed as high-handed and the Ifriqiya gang comes off as defensive and territorial. The two finally met the main Berber army outside of Fez, and the gist of things is that the Syrians refused to listen to the experienced Habib. The battle went terribly for them, and when Habib died, his troops just abandoned the Syrians, who would have been decimated if it wasn't for Kulthum's nephew Belj, who led the 10,000 or so survivors to a defensible position in Ceuta, from where they wrote to Andalusia asking for sanctuary. Andalusia had not been immune to developments in the Maghrib, however, and the Berber uprising in Zaragoza had already been thwarted just a year before the Great Revolt. When news of the defeat of the Caliphate outside Fez spread to the province, a larger mutiny now began to form, however. The Berbers abandoned their garrisons in the north of Spain and made their way down to Córdoba, where Habib's son was governor, putting him in a very tough spot. He had no love for the Syrians, who had mistreated his people and let his father lose his life in battle, but he realized he could use their help, 
and so before agreeing to allow them to come over, he made them promise that they would help fight the Berbers, and then leave within a year after the fighting was done. They promptly agreed, as their situation in Ceuta was growing quite precarious. Belch and his Syrian troops made quick work of the Berbers once they got to Andalusia, but they showed no interest in returning to Africa after they were done. And so when Habib's son tried to force them out, Belch beat him on the battlefield, deposed him, then had him tortured to death. This, of course, greatly angered the Fihris, who still had some clout in the region, and Andalusia devolved to Syrian on Afriqian on Berber warfare for a few years before each party had a zone of influence to call its own. I'm sure you'll agree that the situation in the Maghrib was an unmitigated disaster. Hisham appointed Handala, a prominent member of the powerful Kelb tribe, as his latest governor of Afriqiya, and asked him to take whatever men he could find and rush to defend Qairawan. Handala crushed it, and although the little we have about the battle seems unreliable, with hundreds of thousands of troops reported fighting and killed, the Berber rebellion is said to have failed because its instigators did not manage to take the two Arab capitals of Cordoba and Qairawan. Handala went on to restore Umayyad control over a sizable portion of the Maghrib and to stabilize the situation in Andalusia, but Morocco became, by some measures, the first province to truly break away from the Caliphate. The Maghrib is the region in which Hisham was least effective, but even there he eventually did a reasonable job holding on to something. I think it's a fair point to argue that he should have done more to anticipate better resistance to his tax-happy governors, but also that it's a fair reply that these lands were simply too distant to be effectively administered from all the way in Syria. The relative autonomy enjoyed by the Fihris is another sign that the province was simply too remote to be controlled, and they became the de facto ruling clan in the west, even fighting Syrian Arab armies for control of Andalusia. The key to Arab power in the West was Berber cooperation, and it was a deadly mistake to overlook that than allow Berber unity to eclipse Arab unity. There aren't any names you need to keep in mind from this side of the Ummah, as it's on its way out when it comes to political relevance within the Caliphate. The whole part about invading France was also pretty pointless as far as the Ummah's fortunes were concerned. All it did was deplete Andalusia's forces somewhat, but not to an extent that made much of a difference. These assertions are difficult to defend, however. I'm just trying to correctly frame the problems in the West as having been entirely about the way Arabs and Berbers got along, not about the loss of a few armies in Europe. Who knows, though? It's not like we can test any of these claims. I hope what I said last time about the Umayyads being fortunate to get a great leader like Hisham when they did makes more sense after this episode. Can you imagine what would have happened to the Ummah if a handful of weak, short-lived leaders followed Yazid II's reign? Forget about standing up to the Khazars or Berbers. The Caliphate would have been reduced to just Syria and Egypt, if not destroyed altogether. Hisham's reign wasn't full of glory for the Ummah. It was more about managing defeat and regrouping effectively, something he succeeded at time and again. While the focus was on military affairs in this episode, notice how we didn't hear anything about Hisham being hamstrung by the tribal feud, or being broke, or any of a host of other administrative problems faced by his predecessors. Ultimately, despite mixed results overall, I think he did very well, and that he proved he had what it took to address the Ummah's various crises, left unattended to by the caliph that came before him. He needed all those administrative skills and a good dose of luck to deal with the situation in Khurasan, which we'll talk about next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <music> <music>